Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Roger Timmerman, CEO of Utopia Fiber, an open access municipal fiber network in the state of Utah, formed by a group of 11 cities in 2004. He and I discuss why these cities chose the municipal open access model, how it works and why it works, and we get into the ongoing debate around whether or not the federal government should support municipal networks and what other municipalities should be prepared for as they embark on building out broadband themselves. Roger, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Very excited to talk to you. Thanks, Nicole. Happy to be here. So to start off, could you just give me some background on Utopia Fiber? Tell me a bit about where it's active, how it got started, and what type of network it is. So Utopia Fiber, um, it, we're, we're a consortium of cities, essentially. So we're a lot of people think we're just some company out there building and, and selling fiber services and, and things, but we're actually... We were the effort of cities who recognized the need uh, and, and actually almost a last resort for them. They had tried to work with private companies. Uh, they'd offered incentives. They'd you know, done everything they could think of to try to bring better broadband uh, to their cities and just could not get any any attention uh, or, or any cooperation from the incumbent providers. They were, you know, the incumbents were just perfectly content to sit on their old networks and, and break in profits and no, not make any investment. So the cities decided uh, they'd take matters into their own hands. Uh, they would create uh, a, a partnership so that you know, they get some economy of scale and doing lots of cities. And you know, some of these cities were rural and some of them were small. Some of them were bigger. I mean, we have several of the top 10 cities in Utah. And so just the, the, cooperation of all these cities together made sense uh, so they wouldn't duplicate effort and get and would get that economy of scale so they created utopia fibers an interlocal entity uh, in utah it's a lot like a joint powers authority or or some other you know cooperation of public agencies and and we didn't want to be in a space where we were coming in to compete with the private companies either so they when they were considering what options to do you know, there was the idea we could come in and build this and, and offer services, or they could do what's known as an open access model, uh, where they build it and allow other companies to come in and actually compete on the, the public infrastructure. Uh, at that time, uh, their hands were forced a little bit because the state legislature decided they wanted to squash this effort, right? And and that's, you know, heavily incumbent driven, uh, you know, whether that's a, a, a federal government, you know, elected body or state government, we have uh, lobbying influences of incumbents at all levels of government. Uh, and so it was basically, uh, you know, here's the uh, ALEC legislation we would like your state to pass. <laughs> and it was put into place. Uh, and and there was a last resort, you know, compromise that was made. It, it was really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds familiar <laughs> to a story that's going on. They got an exception made in there that was basically, we're going to not put in all these prohibitions or these prohibitions are not applicable if you do open access is essentially what it means. And, and if you do a careful reading of the state code, it doesn't outright prohibit municipal fiber. They said, yeah, this, this would show our hand. Uh, we'll just make it so ridiculously prohibitive that no one would ever do it. And that's the way this code reads. It's just this horrible, horrible chapter of, of garbage legislation that written by incumbent providers to, to just stifle any efforts. And so 
this exemption uh, is where we live. We basically say none of that garbage applies because we're open access and we partner with private providers to offer services. And that was a good model anyways. So it didn't kill us. It just made the decision of how we would do this. So we build fiber networks. We put it to the homes, to the businesses, throughout a community. There's no redlining. You know, this is a city effort. So we're like, we, we want this to go everywhere. We want our low income areas. We want our higher income areas. We want our rural areas. We want our urban areas. We want, uh, you know, this to be very accessible to everyone. Uh, it's not pro profit driven, although we do want to have revenues to cover the cost of our projects. Uh, and so we build this fiber. We let the private companies come in and use it. So they essentially lease connectivity on the network uh, and they compete with each other. So if you were to go to our website uh, and sign up, you know, you'd actually get a shopping cart and you can go in there and say, ah, I want this provider. And, and there's internet, there's phone, there's TV options. Uh, you know, nowadays, mostly people just get a really good internet connection. Uh, and then you know, there's a lot of good over the top solutions, but there's a lot of competition. We've got 15 providers. And, and I think that's important because it's, it's like, yeah, of course, you know, the big telco companies, the cable company and telephone company just don't like any effort, anything happening from a public sector perspective. But for every one of those, we've got 10 or so of these private local companies that say, I want to be a broadband provider or I am a broadband provider and I need this fiber infrastructure. So we don't, th this isn't anti-company or anti-private sector. This is pro-private sector, pro-competition. The only thing that this is anti is anti-monopoly, right? Mm -hmm. Your monopoly, you don't like this. Right. But, <laughs> but all these private companies love it. And that's right. been important. So anyways, lots of choice. You know, it's we're we were originally 11 cities. Uh, we have done a bunch of additional partners with uh, cities. Uh, it's gone really well. And so these other cities have have contracted with us. And so now we're up to about 16 cities for fibers to the home. Um, but we also have a lot of middle mile. And so we provide services fiber wise in about 50 cities uh, across Utah, a little bit into uh, Idaho and, and Nevada as well. Awesome. And before you guys came along, what kind of services were these cities getting? Well, you know, historically things have changed a lot too. So it's not just that they didn't have any fiber, but it, this was 2004 when the thing started. And so we were competing with dial-up. I mean, it, okay. you know, that's, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Wireless has gotten better and, uh, you know, t telephone, twisted pair of copper and, and cable have gotten better, but you know, <laughs> it's still yeah. fiber much better. So right. without Utopia today, it's you're basically either on Comcast uh, or you're on CenturyLink DSL or you're on one of the wireless providers. And then Utopia, when a city decides to do Utopia, you suddenly have fiber. Uh, so it's a dramatic difference when when we come in. But yeah, and it's fascinating. Um, you know, it sounds like you really needed to have the right people in place in order to work around these local laws that might have restricted um, other states or, or cities from being able to, to do what you were able to do. How did you manage to do that? You know, a lot of people have been involved in this project were involved in those those debates at the legislature trying to figure, you know, how do we keep this thing alive? How do we structure this in a way that doesn't violate any of these, you know, uh, incumbent funded <laughs> restrictions? <Yeah. laughs> um, when we talk about a city in another state, you know, we got to go check all the boxes with, you know, what does your state legislature say? And, and, and this is an ongoing fight. I mean, you look out there, I think Ohio's about to 
in attempts to ban municipal fiber. Uh, Idaho has had some legislation that's uh, been pretty uh, difficult to deal with. Uh, California, I think, is trying to go a little the other direction, open things up a little bit more for open access. And yeah, Washington just uh, also overturned their ban on municipal networks. Um, but let's stick with this topic then, uh, because the knives are certainly out for municipal broadband uh, with the Biden administration saying they want to prioritize it and, you know, uh, not support municipal networks. Um, and uh, this week, the former mayor of Provo, uh, Utah, released an op-ed using the failure of that city's municipal network um, as an example of why to not fund these networks. He writes that it was ultimately bought by Google Fiber for a dollar um, because it was you know, just so useless, he says. Um, so this is the argument I'm hearing a lot. If I listen to congressional hearings, um, you know, there's they, they always have a witness to speak against um, municipal networks. So I'd love to know what your response is to that argument that they're a failure. Obviously, you, you run one that's not. Um, and as a municipal fiber guy, specifically in the state of Utah, uh, what can you tell me about what happened in Provo? Yeah, the funny thing is, I see the exact opposite narrative to what happened in Provo is what John Curtis says. I'm just uh -huh. like, what he's saying is is this oversimplification of what happened. It's, Provo is an example of a failed government, you know, uh, subsidized private network, right? And and that's because there was a whole thing that happened before Google Fiber that he's glossing over. When municipal, when Provo City built a fiber network in its city. They were growing and adding customers and they had over 10,000 customers and they were hitting the, the benchmarks for take rates and subscriber counts, right? Everything looked great, but they hadn't financed some of the installation costs. There were some short, you know, financial shortfalls, but everything was trending really, really well. Uh, there was a whole bunch of political pressure uh, because there was a, they had to budget for a, a shortfall uh, and they needed to, they probably should have just done another incremental bond to fund new customers. I mean, any business would have said, hey, this is a good problem to have is more customer installations that need to be funded, right? But there was a lot of politics going on in the city and the, and the mayor panicked and the mayor said, hey, let's, uh, let's uh, give it to this private company for free. Uh, they'll just take over the cost of the bond payments. And so they transitioned, they privatized the network. And this was, this was way before Google Fiber happened. That thing went in the toilet. I mean, it, the company didn't pay the bond payments and they defaulted on it. Meanwhile, customers were leaving. It wasn't being repaired. And, you know, had that company not had to pay, pay the bond payments, it probably would have been successful. But it was this whole like politically motivated privatization of the network that failed. The municipal owned and managed network before that was fantastic. So they screwed it up when they tried to make it a private network. That is what put Provo City in the desperate situation where they would say this network is worth a dollar and we'll give it to Google Fiber. You know, like this, this is not an example of a failed municipal network. This is an example of a failed private network. Had they kept the municipal network, it would have been hugely successful and it would have paid most of that bond off, whereas the Google Fiber partnership doesn't pay well i guess it pays a dollar it doesn't pay two dollars of the day <laughs> i couldn't say it, it doesn't pay a dollar towards the debt it pays exactly one dollar right got it okay so I i'm just like in in, in, the, in the in the crazy thing about how this is john curtis wasn't there you know he came in after and then he negotiated the google fiber thing 
in the small world that we live in. I was there. I was one of the network engineers that built the municipal fiber network in Provo. Like, and, and so, I mean, I guess maybe he doesn't understand the history because I don't think he does. He wasn't there. And I was, and a lot of us were, and we're just like, this narrative that's being shared is just simply false. He doesn't get it, right? Wow, okay. So, I knew I would get the truth from uh, another Utah guy. <laughs> so like Provo was an example of a successful municipal fiber network until it was privatized. Okay. And it was like, so, so this story of how Provo was an example and a basis for criticizing municipal fiber it's just not based on any truth. Okay. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that actual history. Um, since so there are so many objections being raised to municipal networks, can you speak to what some of the challenges are to running a municipal fiber network? Like, and if yeah. the federal government does successfully, you know, manage to support those networks in, in whatever eventual legislation comes out, um, what else needs to be factored into that legislation for these networks to be successful? Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that there's risk associated with municipal fiber, right? Mm -hmm. It's a space that, you know, is competitive. You know, cities are used to building roads and water and other utilities where they don't face any competition. Um, and it's a little different with municipal fiber. So you've, you've got to be very careful. You've got to properly assess uh, competition. Uh, but you also got to <laughs> assess the political and the lobbying and, you know, the stuff that doesn't come across uh, as well. It comes in indirectly. You know, in Utah, for example, we have the Utah Taxpayers Association which people think represents taxpayers, and it, it doesn't, not one bit. They, the chair of the organization works for CenturyLink. They are constantly promoting anti-government everything, and they represent the people who contribute to the organization, which makes sense, except for the name of the organization. It's just completely inappropriate. So you can just assume that anything that comes out of the Utah Taxpayers Association is basically sponsored and funneled by you know, money being brought in uh, by some special interest. Um, so you've got to anticipate that you got to anticipate that incumbent challenge and the political stuff that happens in the background. Uh, and it's also very technical, right? It's, uh, you know, lane pipes, a lot of it is similar, right? We put in conduit in the ground and, and that's very similar to lane pipes for other utilities. Um, but you do have a network, you know, routers and switches and things like that, that are a little more technical than what cities are typically used to. That's where we get some of the economy of scale benefit is that we're able to staff you know, a very good team of network engineers who design these and, and build those. And my background is actually in network engineering, so I can hold their feet to the fire and know that we do a good job on stuff. Um, and so I think that's attributes to some of our successes is that we know what we're doing uh, and we are, uh, you know, competitive from a technology perspective with any private sector uh, provider. Uh, and that, that can be tough. So, you know, cities need to have the right partners. Uh, they need to not just take at face value what vendors and consultants tell them. I think they get misled more often than not um, because there's a lot of people out there looking to get rich off of these projects. Uh, and, you know, we definitely could benefit from a larger skill set or a larger base of skilled workers in, tele, you know, telecommunications in the public sector. Uh, that's a, that is a problem. I mean, it's a problem for, you know, other materials that we need for these networks, you know, there's shortages in all sorts of industries. Uh, and uh, I think there is a, a shortage of labor and skill sets out there in the telecommunications industry. And so for cities looking to get into this, you know, you, you just got to be, you got to be competitive.
Yeah. So speaking of shortages, can you tell me a little bit about how you guys are preparing for uh, supply chain shortages for the upcoming year? Yeah, you know, we, we forecast our stuff out quite a, quite a ways. Um, mm-hmm. We have some of these new city partnerships and, you know, we, we order our materials for these projects a full year in advance. <laughs> and that's, that's a little crazy to, to be that far in advance. But, you know, if we don't use it for that project, we'll use it for another project. You know, we're, we have a lot of network and a lot of build in front of us one way or the other. And so uh, we're in a, we have a little bit of a luxury of being able to forecast things better than a lot of others can. Um, same thing applies with our contractors, right? We've been a very long-term, reliable source of work uh, for various contractors, whereas in this industry, usually it's not. It's usually project-based. So you go in here and say, I have a thing and I need it built. And when the thing is done, you're gone, right? And, and whereas Utopia has been consistently growing and expanding over you know, about almost 20 years now. Um, and so uh, we're able to lock down resources from a construction, installer, staffing, all of that, because um, we're, we're reliable for them. Okay, great. It's, it's a challenge. Yeah. You know, it, it, we see some of these other projects who are just getting started. Um, there's another one. I don't I want to call them out. They might get mad at me. But they're in our, <laughs> let's say there's another city in our area who said, we're going to do it ourselves. Yeah. And I've told them, like, I sure hope you've ordered all the materials for your project <laughs> because you're not going to be, you know, you're going to break ground and you're not going to have yeah. anything to put in the ground, right? Yeah, you're not I'm gonna... hearing a year from some people uh, in terms of delays for materials. Yeah, so some of these independent projects we'd look at and say, you're probably on a four to five year build out schedule, whereas if it were done under a utopia model, it'd probably be two to three years at most because we are so far ahead on materials acquisition, you know, resource uh, you know, nailing down resources from contractors and labor and all that other stuff. So Yeah. Wow. Well, it sounds like the uh, state of Utah is very lucky to have you. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about all of this today. I will definitely be keeping up with you, <laughs> and especially as these battles over municipal broadband uh, continue at the federal level. Yeah, it's I mean, I would just say like this is a good model. If anyone who's thinking about this, there's so much pressure, you know, you say, where's this coming from? It's not coming from cities. It's not coming from people. You know, people in the cities and the communities desperately want better broadband and municipal fiber works and even open access, which does add a layer of complexity with the, you know, part private partners out there still works. And it's a, it's an excellent solution. It's the very best compromise of politics, right? Cause we're not competing with private sector, we're enabling private sector. Like this is this is should be the future of broadband in America. Yeah. Um, and there's just all this opposition out there and it's unfounded. Uh, so yeah. we need to oppose these false narratives that are out there. Please reach out to those who, who know and have experiences in this. We're, you know, through podcasts <laughs> and other forums, you know, we're out there sharing the message. Yeah, but, absolutely. But, you know, follow up with those and talk to the other yeah. networks that are out there. There are people out there who know what they're doing, who are good at this, um, and and we're happy to, to help where we can. Thank you again, Roger Timmerman, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. 
Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.